Geraldo Rivera's Murder in the Family comes from the real crime fans at Reels Channel. To get more programs like this when you watch TV, go to Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com for the real crime series and specials you'll only find on Reels Channel. Golden Globe winning actor Dylan McDermott thrills audiences with an incredible range of television and film performances. Throughout his career, many of his action movies feature guns and graphic violence. But it is in his personal life that Dylan McDermott survives a real shooting, far more horrifying. Over 40 years earlier, a young Dylan hears gunfire coming from inside his own home. Dylan tries to get back inside the apartment, but he can't. Door's locked. Later, he watches paramedics carry his just 20-year-old mother, Diane, away. Eventually, my grandmother had to say, your mother's not coming back. For decades, McDermott struggles with his mother's untimely shooting death. Police call it accidental, but Dylan doesn't buy it. She was not the type of person that would harm herself or accidentally shoot herself. McDermott decides to uncover the truth about what really happened that day. He did what nobody else wanted to do, nobody else wanted to talk about. But more than 40 years later, can the details surrounding his mother's death ever be truly revealed? I mean, the whole thing itself, it's right out of a movie. On a frigid winter day in 1967, a domestic argument heats up inside a home in working-class Waterbury, Connecticut. As a young couple fights indoors, a five-year-old boy sits shivering outside. That five-year-old grows up to be the celebrated actor, Dylan McDermott. He's an American sex symbol, a leading man in feature films, and a Golden Globe winner on the hit television series, The Practice. But on that terrible day in 67, McDermott's entire world it's turned upside down. Inside his Walnut Street home, young Dylan feels trapped. His mother, Diane, and her new boyfriend, John Sponza, are fighting again. Michael Gugliat, retired chief of police, Waterbury, Connecticut. Neighbors would often hear them arguing, and on that day, there was uh, a vicious violent argument that was taking place. As a result of that argument, John Sponza put Dylan McDermott outside in the cold. All the while, he's hearing this argument that's taking place. The argument ends suddenly with the sharp crack of gunfire. Jonathan Shepherds, reporter, Republican American. There's a gunshot. And when that occurs, Dylan tries to get back inside the apartment, but he can't. Door's locked. So he runs around to the back side of the building, and he tries to get in that entrance, but he can't. And he runs back around to the front, but he still can't get in. Inside the apartment with Diane and John Sponza is Dylan's seven-month-old sister, Robin. Robin McDermott Herrera, Dylan McDermott's sister. I have no memory of the day of my mother's passing, and, and maybe that's a good thing. I was in a playpen. The neighbors heard it. Sponza called the police, and my neighbors came down to get me. Arriving at the scene, police immediately questioned the boyfriend, John Sponza. 
John Sponza tells them that out of the blue, while he was cleaning his weapon at the kitchen table, Diane McDermott picked it up, walked towards the pantry closet, and the gun went off. But later, changes the story to indicate that Diane had picked up the gun and intentionally shot herself in the head. As the police continue to question Sponza, emergency workers gather Diane and put her on a stretcher. Horrified, young Dylan watches his mother being taken to the hospital. The last time he saw my mother, he was outside on the front porch. He saw her hand. Her arm had dropped to the side of the gurney. And they had covered her head because she had a head wound and she was bleeding, lots of, of blood. Hours later, Diane McDermott succumbs to her head wound. But that news does not reach young Dylan. His maternal grandmother, Avis Marino, steps in to protect her grandkids. She moves into Diane's Walnut Street apartment and tells Dylan that his mother is being cared for. When our mother was taken away, he thought she was coming back from the hospital and that every day he would go to the door and, and say, is this the day, you know, and we called our grandmother Nanny. And he would be like, Nanny, is this the day that, you know, mom's coming home? And she'd be like, yeah, she'll be home. She's coming home soon. And I can picture him at that door, just sitting there waiting for her. And she just never came back. But eventually, my grandmother had to tell him. She had to say, your mother's not coming back. The Waterbury, Connecticut police have Diane's body examined by the city coroner. And the initial findings seemed to match John Sponza's story. There was an examination done of Diane McDermott. They found that there was a contact wound to the left side, back side of her head, and that the exit wound of the bullet was just above her right eye. Ultimately, it was classified as an accidental shooting. No other details. An accidental shooting, case closed. The investigation was, in my opinion, so poorly conducted, almost no investigation at all. But for those who truly knew Diane McDermott, this case poses far more questions than answers. Maybe my mother couldn't handle being a mother so young and having two children. And why did she not want to be with us? Were we not lovable? Everyone was clear that she was not the type of person that would commit suicide or accidentally shoot herself. Once police had John Sponza's story, they, they didn't do too much else after that. Diane McDermott's death was swept under the rug. Six years before her tragic death, a teenage Diane falls in love with a boy from Waterbury. Diane Marino beats Richard McDermott at a local library. They become a couple, and eventually she gets pregnant at the age of 15 with her first child. She was a, a typical teenager living in Waterbury. She fell in love early, which during that period was not uncommon. In 1962, Diane marries 17-year-old Richard, following the birth of their first baby, Mark Anthony McDermott, who took the name Dylan. 
Less than five years later, Diane and Richard bring another child into the family, baby sister Robin. But not long after Robin is born, Richard and Diane separate. Richard and Diane were together uh, for approximately four or five years. Certainly, I think their young age and the fact that Diane became pregnant and had, had Dylan at such a young age caused a lot of stress in that relationship. Now single, Diane sets her sights on a new man. Diane McDermott fell in with John Sponza um, through a breakup, in fact. John Sponza had been dating uh, another girl at the time. Uh, he wound up pushing her to the ground, and she broke up with him. And that was probably a, a fortuitous thing. For Diane, John Sponza appears to be a glamorous character from the streets. John Sponza had a persona in Waterbury of being a wise guy in every sense of the word. He uh, associated himself with a group of criminals, always had money, always flashing his gun. But Diane's new love interest hides a much darker history. John Sponza was a heroin addict at age 15 years old. He was arrested a couple times, even before his 15th birthday, mostly for larcenies, robberies, and stealing cars. And as a man, Sponza becomes a menace to society. John Sponza was a wannabe gangster. Sponza was attracted to this lifestyle. It gave him a license to be cruel, and I think that that's what he actually liked. He was just not a good person. He was mean to everyone that he came in contact with. He was horrible. From the time he was a kid, Sponza was just horrible. Diane McDermott follows her passion and becomes Sponza's new girlfriend. But immediately, she pays a terrible price. When Diane became involved with John Sponza, her life quickly became unhinged. Sponza was physically abusing Diane. Very often, her friends and her family would see bruises and marks on her body. I heard from several cousins, aunts and uncles, that he would repeatedly abuse her, beat her, throw her to the ground, he'd kick her. Once trapped inside Sponza's sick world, Diane adopts his bad habits. Diane McDermott became, unfortunately, uh, addicted to drugs. Uh, Sponza at the time was addicted to heroin and eventually he managed to get her strung out on it. Adding insult to injury, Sponza humiliates Diane for sport. In front of their other friends, he would have flashed a gun at her, tease her. She became a spectacle, sort of entertainment for his group of friends in the most vile and vicious way imaginable. She eventually made her get a tattoo on her upper thigh that said, I love John Sponza. He took a sweet, innocent lady and turned her into his punching bag. Repeatedly beaten and addicted to drugs, Diane feels caught in a terrible nightmare. I was speaking to a cousin last week. He went to go visit her. She had bruises all over her body, and they were visible. And he was just like, why don't you get out of this? Why can't you leave this man? And 
And she just said, I can't. Every time she tried, he just would be more physical with her and he would track her down and, and pull her away. Sponza continues to terrorize Diane McDermott. There is an inherent evilness to guys like John Sponza. And eventually, Sponza turns that evil on Dylan, her firstborn son. He was petrified of this man. He was, he was brutal. Five-year-old Dylan McDermott watches as his mother Diane is carried from their home on a stretcher, bleeding from a headwound. Her boyfriend John Sponza tells police it was a suicide. Years later, the star of Steel Magnolias, The Practice, and American Horror Story still wrestles with the events of that traumatic day. Dylan McDermott recalls firsthand that John Sponza is not someone that could be trusted. He's someone to be feared. John Sponza was an individual that needed to carry a weapon. He was a type of individual that needed to show it off. Dylan, at age five, he had vivid recollections of John Sponza pointing a gun at him. Not once, not twice, but numerous times. John Sponza would, would take a gun and he'd put it in his face and he'd say, he'd say, shut up, get out of here, kid. And, and you know, this is, this is a true monster. Now, only an evil man would do that. The sadistic Sponza never misses a chance to terrorize Dylan. Sponza would take him out to the park and he had his gun and he would show my brother the gun and he would point it at squirrels or at birds and he would be like, you know, I could kill them easily, I could shoot them anytime and if you're not a good boy, I could do the same to you. He was petrified of this man. He was brutal. This kind of violence that was carried out by John Sponza against Dylan McDermott must have had an incredible impact on the boy and it must have affected his, his growing years. To even have a gun pointed at you once is a very traumatic thing. But Sponza's sadism doesn't stop with Dylan. Dylan's mother, Diane, faces the brunt of his rage. He had, at one time, had possession of a 38 caliber. He would threaten Diane with the gun. I mean, there's reports that he had her kneel inside the apartment while he pointed the gun at her head. Immediately following Diane's death, Sponza leaves Waterbury. But in the years that follow, he continues to rely on fear and intimidation to get what he wants. And to feed his ongoing heroin habit, he needs fast cash. Working with a crew of local thugs, he robs banks around New England. Bank robberies in that period of time was so prevalent because it was an easy score. It was the quickest way to get a dollar bill, is to go and hold up somebody and take it. John Sponza's crew, which involved at least five guys, they were pretty good at robbing banks. Uh, at least a couple of them got away with robbing almost a dozen. Sponza's crew amassed possibly $100,000 to $200,000. People were saying how they had stacks of cash, all of the crew members. They would give money to their girlfriends, and they would know the amount based on the height of the bills. 
after a few successful scores. Sponsor drives the loot across state lines to launder the money. They would pile up a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars from a bank robbery and then go in and, and wash it in Rhode Island. On these laundering trips, Sponsor travels with his new wife and some added protection. He carries a 357 Magnum with him. And according to her, he always told her, if a cop pulls me over, I'm going to take him out. While John Sponsor rides his criminal wave, Dylan and Robin McDermott start their young lives, being supported by Avis, their maternal grandmother. Their father, Richard, leaves Connecticut and moves to New York City. Our grandmother worked very hard. The last grade she held in school was eighth grade because she had to work to take care of her brothers and sisters. So when it came time to take care of my brother and I, our father um, signed over his parental rights to my grandmother to be our custodial guardian. Avis takes a job at the local metal factory, doing piecework at minimum wage. I think it was very tough for, for Avis to raise her grandkids. She now has to take on full responsibility of two small children and try to grieve herself for the loss of her daughter. She didn't have a man in her, in her life at that time. With his father living in New York, young Dylan steps in to be the family patriarch. My brother was uh, the man of the house. He was always helping my grandmother. He'd bring in the groceries. He'd, you know, take out the trash. If she needed something, he was there for her. When he got out of school, he would come up to get me from school to walk me home. Dylan has always been a caregiver, and I think that has a lot to do with my mother's passing. One day, the criminal element returns to the McDermott home, but it is not John Sponza. I walked inside the house like I did every other day, and there were two men inside my brother's room, and they were stealing his leather coat. They were taking his shoes. They had a bag full of stuff, and I screamed, and I ran outside to the policeman on the crosswalk, and they took off. A year or two later, we were robbed again, and my grandmother just decided we were going to leave, and we moved from Walnut Street. Grandmother Avis, along with Dylan and Robin, struggle in the years following the death of Diane. We came from nothing. We had nothing when we were kids, and I don't think people believed that we could make it, that we would get out of the cycle of life that we were in. Meanwhile, bank robber and thug John Sponza decides to pull off the ultimate score. Sponza pulled out a gun and was wildly shooting. But this time, his luck may have run out. They all want to take him out. They all want him dead. Did you know you can stream the Murder in the Family TV series on Roku and Fire TV? Well, you can. Just download the Reels app and subscribe to see the crime scene photos and reenactments behind this podcast. If you've got Prime Video, Murder in the Family is on Amazon channels, too. You could even find new episodes on Sean P. Diddy Combs, Robert Blake, and the Manson family before they are podcasts. Murder in the Family comes from the real crime fans at Reels channel. Find Reels on your TV by going to Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-C dot com.
Following the bloody and mysterious death of his single mom, Golden Globe winning actor Dylan McDermott struggles as a young man growing up in Waterbury, Connecticut. The last person to see Dylan's mother alive is her abusive former boyfriend, John Sponza. Working with his criminal crew, Sponza dives deeper into the world of drugs, robbery, and violence. But he eventually sets his sights on a much bigger payday. And this time, he's going it alone. Following two successful robberies, Sponza tells his fellow crew members that he wants his share. One May evening, they all drive out together to eastern Connecticut. John Sponza, uh, along with four other members of his um, bank robbing crew, had driven into the woods under the pretense that they were going to divvy up the money from their latest score. Three crew members sit in the back, while a four drives the car. After getting to a secluded place in the woods, they park. When the car stops, John Sponza turns from the front passenger seat and he's got two guns in both hands and he lights the car up. In the rear middle seat, crew member Skinny Diodowitz takes a fatal bullet while the side passengers escape. Two individuals that were seated to the outside were able to get out and run away. The driver of the vehicle claimed that Sponza looked at him and said, you have a, a lease on life, so the driver was unharmed. Exact details of the events that night are sketchy, based on hearsay and witness testimony. But to this day, Skinny's corpse has never been found. It's John Sponza, he's tried to kill his former crew, He's only succeeded in killing one. That leaves three guys, and they all want to take him out. They all want him dead. The surviving members want a payback. <laughs> so John Sponza was not going to get away with murder. It wasn't going to happen. The surviving members came up with a plan. In Waltham, Massachusetts, an overnight patrol officer comes across a Dodge Charger sitting alone in a shopping lot. He recognizes the license plate. A rental company makes a report to police that an individual that rented a vehicle never returned a vehicle. The individual was John Sponza. The officer begins to approach the vehicle. He smells this distinct odor of rotting flesh emanating from the rear of the vehicle. And they have to get a locksmith to open up the, the car because they don't have the keys. And when they open up the trunk, they find John Sponza's body. He was face down, he'd been shot three times. The manner in which he was ultimately found dead, the message was that John Sponza deserved the most undignified manner of death capable. John Sponza got exactly what he deserved, a dirty death for a dirty man. They didn't bury him. They didn't take him out into the woods where nobody could find him. 
They shot him three times, put him ass up in the, in the trunk of a car. When he was found, had a dollar twelve on him. He had a floral pattern shirt, and he had a fake diamond ring on his finger, just like the fake gangster he tried to be. The grim details of Sponza's mob-style execution remain an underworld secret, since no one is charged with this murder. Sponza's reign of terror and violence ends in 1972, but for the McDermott family, his death provides little solace. The death of John Sponza left a lot of unanswered questions, specifically as it pertained to Diane McDermott's death. The police investigation at the time relied heavily on, on Sponza's version of events. Sponza, the last person to see Diane McDermott alive in 1967, can no longer be questioned by police. It's very ironic that the only person that knows the truth of what happened in that kitchen was killed in 1972. Would the details of Diane's final moments go to the grave with John Sponza? When John Sponza was found in the trunk of that car, it probably closed the case in a lot of people's minds. It wasn't court justice, it was street justice. But still, the family of Diane McDermott was left with not knowing uh, how she really died. In the years following his mother's death, Dylan McDermott emerges a strong, independent teenager in search of a new adventure. My father would come back and take Dylan to New York City when he was younger, and I think Dylan developed a love for the city at an early age. Richard Mack McDermott works at a bar in New York's Greenwich Village and gets his son Dylan a part-time job. He would be with my father and bus tables. It was quick money. It was great. And you'd think he liked the excitement. Compared to Waterbury, New York City was, you know, a great place to be. Upon graduation from high school, McDermott gets accepted at Fordham University in New York. At the same time, he bonds with his new stepmother, playwright Eve Ensler, author of The Vagina Monologues. Eve was into directing and producing and writing. She had a play one time and I believe that someone didn't show up and she needed someone to stand in for them and Dylan got the part. He stood in and he was a natural. He loved it and she nurtured him from that day on to find that side in him, the creative side. So he decided to change his major and he went into theater. With her brother Dylan away at college, teenage Robin McDermott makes a shocking discovery. I was about 16 years old and I went into my grandmother's room and on my grandmother's bed was a metal box and it had been open and inside it was her paperwork and I was nosy and I started to go through it and I was reading newspaper articles about how my mother had died because she died from a self-inflicted wound that she shot herself, and I was devastated. Robin realizes for 16 years she has been living a lie. My grandmother told me that my mother passed in a car accident, so I believed that for the longest time. And I was like, why did she kill herself, and 
who is this person that was with her? Was that, you know, who's, who's this man? And is he still alive? There were so many questions, and my grandmother just didn't really want to talk about it. So Robin confronts her grandmother, Avis, about John Sponza. She told me that he was a bully, that he would threaten my mother. He threatened my brother. He would do any means available to him to get what he wanted. And he wasn't afraid to just push people around. The dark memories of John Sponza continue to haunt the McDermott family. I'm petrified to be around a gun because I'm afraid it'll go off accidentally. And it will require Dylan to exercise the demons of the past. Dylan McDermott had the courage to come forward and be his mother's voice. Diane McDermott, mother of actor Dylan McDermott, dies allegedly from a self-inflicted gunshot wound that Waterbury police declare an accidental shooting. Years later, her former boyfriend, career criminal John Sponza, dies in a mob-style hit, payback for double-crossing his crew. In the 1970s and 80s, an up-and-coming Dylan McDermott, star of television's The Practice and American Horror Story, moves on with his life. But a nagging question lingers in the back of his mind. Did John Sponza have something to do with his mother's death. Upon graduation from Fordham University, Dylan McDermott joins the acclaimed Neighborhood Playhouse School of Theater. He was a natural right from the start. Someone saw him doing Biloxi Blues, and then he got his first movie role, Hamburger Hill. I think he played a captain in the Vietnam War. Wow, that was a big deal. I mean... This was it. Two years later, McDermott is cast alongside another rising star, Julia Roberts in Steel Magnolias. And in 1993, he's partnered with Clint Eastwood in the feature film In the Line of Fire. It was great for him because he was getting more recognition now because he was actually Hollywood royalty. He's a phenomenal actor. He puts his heart and soul in every, every part that he has. Over the next two decades, McDermott becomes an A-list actor and a Hollywood sex symbol. Well, first of all, he's earned the right. He is an extremely handsome guy. My girlfriends will be like, oh, my God, he's so handsome. He's sexy. He did American Horror Story and unfortunately showed his butt. My girlfriend's like, oh, my God, he's gorgeous. But whenever the subject of his mother's death is raised in interviews, Dylan declines to answer. He deflects a lot of those questions. He doesn't want to talk about it. And, and, and who could blame him? How could you really talk about something that you really don't know enough about? The death of Determent's mother must have haunted him for years. In 2010, Waterbury, Connecticut's favorite son, Dylan McDermott, returns to his hometown high school for an event. His sister, Robin, joins him. And we were discussing things. He was going to write a book or um, a story about our lives, our mother's life. And we had always had conflicting ideas of what had happened to our mother. And um, I, I said to him, I said, I don't believe that she killed herself. After their discussion, Dylan decides to make a sentimental journey 
back to his childhood home on Walnut Street. He knocked on the door and he said, I lived here as a boy, can I come walk through? So a lot of memories came back to him that he probably pushed aside. Dylan reaches out to the mayor of Waterbury to request a meeting with chief of police, Michael Gugliotti. He wants to discuss his mother's supposedly accidental shooting in 1967. And I asked him, well, what took you so long? And his answer was simple but profound. And he just looked at me and he said, in order for me to have lived my life and gotten to where I have gotten in life, I had to bury that deep within myself. I want to know what happened. And, and he said, and that's why I'm here. I believe my brother, like anyone who has gone through an extreme trauma, cannot do anything they're not ready to do until the time hits them. After some due consideration, the Waterbury police decide to oblige McDermott's heartfelt request. I think as optimistic as, as we all were and wanted to be, I originally thought it was, it was the longest of long shots. The crime reporter for the local newspaper, The Republican American, Jonathan Shugarts, gets the scoop on the story. Dylan was the catalyst. Dylan was the guy who touched the whole thing off. He was searching for answers. That takes a lot of guts. And it was only because of him that that case got reopened. But when the detectives assigned to this 43-year-old case start their investigation, they immediately hit a brick wall. The entire case file was missing. They go looking for this thing in City Hall and they can't find it. It's not in their own police department. A lot of records were destroyed. I believe there might have been a fire or some water damage. We couldn't find anything. The next step for the investigators was to archive the Waterbury Republican American. They found some articles that were relative to that incident. There was a coroner's inquest into the death, which then led them to seek out a coroner's report. After some digging, Waterbury investigators locate the report. But strangely, it poses more questions than answers. One of the things was the fact that Diane was right-handed. The coroner's report indicated that the entry wound to her head was behind her left ear and had exited the right side of her forehead. There was contact residue evidence as well. That was key because it told investigators that a gun had been pressed to her, the back of her head. But what was also key was the lack of nitrates and nitrites found on her fingertips. So if she had just fired a pistol, how come she didn't have any powder on her hands? Diane may have also left the most valuable clue in her own right hand. There was a paring knife found in her right hand at the time of her death. There's a thing that happens to a body in some cases when a person dies, their muscles spasm all at the same time and they grip whatever is in their hand at that time. Newspaper accounts indicate Sponsor told police Diane was preparing dinner before the shooting. But would she have held the knife in her dominant hand as she committed suicide with her left? So now we're starting to receive information that does not 
go along exactly with John Sponza's version of events. The Waterbury police decide to have their own medical examiner conduct a thorough review of the 1967 coroner's report. And then they turn their energies toward witness testimony. They dug up every single witness they could possibly find. They talked to neighbors. They talked to people who knew Diane. They talked to people who knew John Sponza. They ran down multiple leads. But nearly 40 years after his death, John Sponza and his surviving crew members serving time in prison still strike fear in the local Waterbury community. Witnesses didn't even want to talk about what had occurred. They were too afraid to. They felt that these guys, either in jail or the guys who were still alive, could still reach out and touch them. Could the brutal John Sponza hinder this case, even from the grave? People, even in 2011, were still afraid of the mob. That fear was palpable. And will Dylan McDermott ever learn the whole truth about his mother's final moments? It was surreal. My brother was holding my hand because it was just horrible. In December 2010, famed actor Dylan McDermott goes to the Waterbury, Connecticut Police Department. He is looking for answers. Dylan expressed an interest in coming into the police station to talk to me to see if there was anything we can do with the case to look into it further. His mother, Diane, may have been a victim of a crime. In 1967, her shooting death was ruled an accident. But 43 years later, McDermott believes her former boyfriend may have played a big part in her death. And it was no accident. Dylan McDermott suppressed emotionally his feelings for a very, very long time. You can't underestimate that, the courage that it took for him to come forward. Despite resistance from witnesses, Waterbury investigators develop a clearer picture about Diane McDermott's former boyfriend, the career criminal John Sponza, who was later killed in a mob-style hit. Sponza was an incredibly violent individual. He abused Diane, he abused other women. He was a, a cruel man. He stuck a gun in a kid's face. He was without a doubt hated. After reviewing the 1967 coroner's report, the Waterbury medical examiner dropped a bombshell on police. Our medical examiner had a difference of opinion on what type of weapon caused um, what ultimately was the fatal injury to Diane McDermott. Um, originally, the coroner's report stated that the wound was caused by a 32 caliber. The 32 caliber was the gun that Sponza turned into police in 1967. However, the medical examiner in 2011 clearly states that it was a larger caliber handgun as a 38. Diane McDermott is found with a 32 caliber handgun next to her body. That indicates at least Sponza had planted the gun on Diane McDermott to make it seem as if that was the gun that was used in her death. Witnesses tell investigators Sponza carried a 38, and he might have used it in a paid mob hit. Speculation is that had John Sponza turned in a 38, 
possibly the police would have tied that weapon to an earlier murder. There really is no other explanation other than that gun was hot, he knew it, and needed to get rid of it. All roads in the McDermott investigation lead to John Sponza. But the final nail in his coffin comes from an unexpected source, his former wife. She has many stories to tell the police about what they did, about laundering hundreds of thousands of dollars. She tells the cops that she's been abused by Sponza too, in horrible ways. She was beaten multiple times. More proof of the pattern of abuse that Sponza had against women. And Sponza makes a jaw-dropping confession to his wife. She gave a statement to our investigators saying that Sponza admitted to killing Diane, but then said accidentally. And he gets a little bit vague there, but he basically confesses to saying, says, yeah, I shot her. John Sponza actually pulling the trigger. That had never been revealed. In April 2011, Chief Gugliotti and his team of investigators invite Robin and Dylan McDermott to the Waterbury Police Headquarters. They had called us and said, we have something we want to show you. We walked into this this boardroom and there were so many detectives. We wanted to let that family know that them coming forward and whatever intuition they had was the right one because we were now learning things to kind of justify their feelings. And then the McDermott's hear the words they have been anticipating for more than 40 years. They came to the conclusion after all this new investigating that she was murdered, our mother was murdered by John Sponza. They were discussing um, how brutal Sponza had been with our mother and they showed us um, his, his mug shots and they showed us um, the picture of him in the back uh, of a car, in the trunk of a car. It was surreal. And my brother was holding my hand. Cause it was just horrible. The police tell the McDermott's they're submitting their new findings to the state's attorney. The police decided that they were going to change the cause of death from accidental or self-inflicted to murder. I, I felt guilt for years thinking maybe my mother couldn't handle um, being a mother so young and having two children. And I, I didn't know what her pressures were and, and you know, why did she not want to be with us? Were we not lovable? I think that just a self sense of relief that she did love us and she didn't, she didn't want to leave us. In reinvestigating the case, it not only gave closure to the McDermott family, but it also righted a wrong. It was wrong. It was a lie that Diane McDermott had shot herself or, or that it was an accident. It was clear that John Sponza had murdered her. After hearing the news, Dylan McDermott and his sister Robin visit the Waterbury gravesite of their mother, Diane. We just stood there. My brother spoke to my mother, and he told her that, you know, we know what happened. People will know what happened. And, um, you know, 
he loved her, we loved her, and um, that we would change um, what people knew of, of the case. There were tears in his eyes. He was very relieved. Um, he did his job. He did what he said he would do, what nobody else wanted to do, nobody else wanted to talk about. And he could put my mother to rest. He's my hero for um, getting that done. Dylan McDermott was the true hero in this case. He ultimately had the courage to come forward and be his mother's voice. Their mother, by all accounts, loved those two kids as much as any mother can love their two kids, and that she was violently taken from those kids and from this earth by an evil, rotten person that ultimately got what he deserved. After years of burying the tragic event of her death, Diane McDermott's young son, Dylan, has grown into the man who insists on setting the record straight. Thanks to the efforts of Waterbury, Connecticut law enforcement, we know Diane did not take her own life. It was stolen from her. Today, Dylan McDermott's acting career continues to flourish. His two children are thriving, and he and his sister Robin have set up an art scholarship at their hometown school in memory of their mom, who, were she alive today, could not be more proud of her loving son. I'm Geraldo Rivera. Next week on Murder in the Family. How did the murder of Dave Navarro's mother define and shape the rest of his life? He felt guilt for not having warned his mom of what had happened to him. Murder in the Family. Geraldo Rivera's Murder in the Family comes from the real crime fans at Reels Channel. To find more original programs like this when you watch TV, go to Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com to find us on your system. You'll also find extras from the TV version of Murder in the Family, including chilling reenactments and crime scene photos you'll only get on Reels Channel.